Well, by sometime in the uh, 17th century, the transition from older views on states, war and peace, transition from this older view to a new paradigm which centered on sovereign states, the sources of law, and final judges in their own cause uh, was pretty much completed. And so this was the end of uh, most attempts to apply any kind of just war theory. Uh, now, some of the um, writers, of course, manage to sound as if they're in that tradition, so this trajectory is sort of Suarez, Grotius, Puffendorf, uh, Vattel, sums up the development, with each writer more and more adopting a positivist uh, position. And we can add in Machiavelli, Baudin, Hobbes, and some other people entirely on the side of this notion of unbounded sovereignty and the heroic unity of the sovereign will embodied in the ruler and increasingly the abstract modern state. And then the more popular forms of government, as they come into being uh, inherent from the monarchies, this notion of unbounded sovereignty and positive law, and finally passing from republicanism to liberalism and then to mass democracy. Now, possibly the last serious resistance to the ideological victory of sovereign states was in the work of Erasmus of Rotterdam in the uh, 16th century. But unfortunately, he hampered his uh, analysis by a belief in the necessity in the end of states. And this is what uh, Erasmus says in uh, one place in his many writings. He says, once you have granted imperial rule, you have granted at the same time the business of collecting money, the retinue of a tyrant, armed force, spies, horses, mules, trumpets, war, carnage, triumph, insurrections, treaties, battles, in short, everything without which it is not possible to manage the affairs of empire. And uh, one writer comments, um, acceptance of the state then is the doom of pacifism. I think we're, oh, that's interesting. Uh, so short of adopting the uh, posture of someone like uh, Etienne de la Boetie, those who acknowledged the manifold evils of war were reduced to advocating practical adjustments within the prevailing system of nation states. Um, this actually, uh, of course, well, at second best, uh, had, had some positive results. Um, coming out of uh, the usage of these states which had emerged and the treaties between them, you begin to have a body of rules which are not always observed, but there are at least uh, some penalties uh, in terms of reputation and, and so forth inflicted on those who, uh, who don't abide by the rules. And I suppose it's fair to say that uh, if we want to call this progress, then the high point is reached in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, as near as I can find out, even the um, campaigns of Napoleon uh, tend to have been conducted within uh, some or all of the prevailing rules. So the big exception in the 19th century that, that comes to mind, at least in, in wars uh, conducted between states where the people were of European ancestry, the big exception is probably Lincoln and his war. Um, Gustav de Molinari talks um, a lot about this um, in an essay published in 1854, and I've used some of this before in a paper on Mises, but I'll, I'll summarize it quickly. 
Uh, Molinari said that economic progress had resulted from the separation of the personnel and materials of war from those of peace, and that a lot of progress had been uh, realized along the lines of adopting and following rules that did not penalize the ordinary um, what's the word I want? Well, the, the ordinary um, things that go on in society, production, all, all the peaceful arts that um, limited the destruction as much as possible to the contending armies. And he said the only problem was that this hadn't been extended. These rules uh, still needed extending uh, to naval warfare, where um, a number of practices, uh, like seizure of and destruction of property on the high seas were normal. And he mentioned a draft treaty in 1780 between Sweden, Denmark, United States, Prussia, Austria, Portugal, and the two Sicilies, which was meant to uh, uh, change the rules in a way that was more favorable to the rights of those who aren't in the war. And this is interesting because uh, rhetorically, uh, in our time, neutrality is, is, is a crime. And we'll come to that shortly, but at this time it was thought that that only the states actually involved in the war need to uh, um, suffer unduly and they should be conducting the war within certain rules and that everyone else's right to trade need not be uh, that much affected. So rules were drawn up about contraband and so on. And Molinari is simply saying, well, these rules could be made more, more rigorous. It's interesting that the uh, early American statesmen were, were quite sound on this. Of course, the United States this confederation being a fairly uh, weak emerging power probably saw some advantage in having the rules changed, but there's also an element of idealism that Rothbard talks about in the fragment to the fifth volume of Conceived in Liberty. Um, okay, so uh, Molinari uh, even suggested that if there was some necessity felt to uh, maintain a blockade that a distinction could be made between a military blockade and a commercial blockade and the second would be illegitimate from his standpoint. So if the enemy has a port that's actually a naval facility for the armed forces you could blockade that but it wouldn't make sense um, under Molinari's uh, view of liberalism to blockade all the ports uh, just to starve the population or uh, maximize the inconvenience. So this is a great um, um, modern uh, notion of uh, that you make the war as terrible as possible, then it's shorter, and then net you save lives. And they can't. I don't see any demonstration um, that this is true. In any event, they don't tell us whose lives were saved specifically. So the whole argument, I think, breaks down. Okay. So let us stipulate then that uh, some rules were adopted. There had been some progress along these lines um, for a couple of centuries, and of course, with, with exceptions and slippage. Well, World War I, I think more than anything else, is this great disaster that um, made all sorts of horrible things possible in the 20th century. In World War I, we see the, uh, the starvation blockade, we see submarine warfare, we see all sorts of things that are hard to uh, reconcile with the older rules. It's interesting that uh, so much of the initiative um, that, that leads to this breakdown of the older international law is undertaken by the then near hegemonic power, Britain, uh, operating out of a kind of cynical view of uh, what it could get away with. 
Uh, so one has to always watch the hegemonic power, seems to me. So out of World War One comes this notion that, well, wars are pretty inconvenient and they're terrible, and um, maybe we should just redefine wars as crime. Maybe we could outlaw war. Maybe we, we, we should be able to distinguish between the good nations and the bad nations and pick out who the aggressor is in any given situation and then require everyone to uh, boycott or even attack this supposed aggressor. And this would be a way to enforce peace. Of course, dodging the usual paradox that they're basically going to war uh, with a coalition of powers to enforce peace. It sounds like an old-fashioned alliance, but now it's got a nice rhetorical gloss. So by sometime in, in 1915, you begin to hear a lot of discussion in well-placed upper-class British circles about the need for some sort of league to enforce peace. And the idea, of course, is famously picked up by Woodrow Wilson. And upon U.S. entry in, into World War I, uh, Wilson is determined to sell this notion of a league to enforce peace. Now, of course, this has some precedent. Uh, in 1735, Jules Cardinal Alberoni proposed a League of Christian Princes to adjudicate their differences, keep the peace, and make war on the Turks. Interesting yet. Yeah program. Uh, and, and some modern writers are now claiming that uh, Emmanuel Concessing on Perpetual Peace is a sort of charter for present-day global democratic crusading. I, I don't know that that would actually be Kant's position. And what's interesting is that you can follow this struggle between the older notion of international law and the new international law, which we associate with the UN and these other institutions. Uh, you can trace a lot of this in one journal. You can look at the American Journal of International Law uh, from the early 20th century down to the present and, and see the battle being, uh, being fought out. Now, the short story version is that um, the new international law thinkers won the battle probably by the mid-1950s. It's a bit like the passing of the old right, and it's not accidental that... Um, some of these older international law theorists were widely cited by the old right. And here I'm thinking of people like John Bassett Moore, just this great jurist, and um, let's see, uh, Borchard, who was, I think, his student, um, uh, Philip Jessup, there's a number of these writers uh, who are still complaining about uh, these trends. Some of them, they're still writing in the early 50s, but then are swept away in the enthusiasm for the Cold War or because they're being overtaken by a younger generation who believe in these new notions of collective security. And this amounts, of course, to redefining uh, the whole nature of war and peace and international, international relations, international law in, in a very fundamental way. Uh, Roland Stromberg, who I don't think is a relation of mine, has written an interesting piece on this about the, the sort of inner contradictions of the idea of a league to enforce peace. Um, the saying, in effect, that, well, the, the, the whole thing breaks down um, conceptually because you can't quite say it's a world government, although some thinkers decided you had to go to a world government. That would be the only way to resolve the problem. And, and this problem is already sort of embedded in classical liberalism because uh, reasoning from a social contract model of how internal peace was established in each separate state, the only way they can think of to uh, prevent war 
is in effect to have some big enforcement power on a global scale. You see this clearly in the writings of someone like Lionel Robbins. All these um, latter-day liberals have a tendency to think that this is the ideal solution. Some sort of world government is unfeasible and dangerous as that might sound to the rest of us. Um, as a quote from the, uh, the New Republic of all sources, in uh, 1915, saying that the League of Peace, that's what they're calling this proposal, would either be the old imperialistic alliance under a, a dishonest name, or else it would be a highly conservative federation which would keep its members in a very straight pacifist jacket. There is no stopping point between at a league to prevent war. Such a league would either grow to a world federation or would break up in civil war. So the war problem is reintroduced uh, uh, in some other uh, in some other fashion. Okay, um, but this is highly fashionable. All sorts of people like Elihu Ruth, the former Secretary of War, uh, Nicholas Murray Butler, who was later to be president of Columbia University. Everyone thinks this is great stuff. Uh, people like Robert Taft have a soft spot for this notion because they've thought themselves, themselves into a corner in which some drastic solution appears to be needed to keep uh, something like World War I from recurring. And then they're locked into certain assumptions about how you could do that, reasoning from an analogy of uh, how protective services are organized domestically to how you would you could do this internationally. So you get all these sort of uh, quasi-federal schemes. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, this Clarence Strite, who wrote a, wrote a couple of books during World War II. A Union now with Britain. We had to have this big Anglo sphere <laughs> federation uh, and if you read his constitution carefully there's some unfortunate uh, omissions there's no second amendment in this proposed uh, anglo federation there's some other problems okay well i suppose i need to fast forward a little um the so league of nations is reputed to have been a failure solely because the united states uh, did not uh, enter this organization, which otherwise would have flourished and kept the peace and prevented World War II, and this seems to all be a, uh, a set of dubious uh, propositions. Well, how was the League supposed to function? Well, the League was um, uh, had its sort of central committee uh, in which the major powers would vote when the situation came up and define the aggressor. Okay. And then it would call upon the members to boycott, uh, put sanctions on the aggressor, which is a new name for what used to be called a blockade, which was at least traditionally considered to be a preliminary uh, action or act of war. Uh, but now this is supposed to be the instrument of peace. So we see this constant redefinition uh, of the fundamentals. Well, Murray Rothbard liked to point out, and does this more than once, that the logic of collective security is simply to widen any war that might uh, break out to, to the greatest possible degree. And now everyone has a duty to uh, be on the right side and support the correct side, and you, you begin to have this uh, uh, notion that every little war that could occur between two minor states uh, will necessarily uh, mushroom into a much larger conflagration. 
Well, in a way, of course, it was an analogy to the big alliance systems that preceded World War I. These were an attempt to solve what the international uh, political theorists call the self-help problem under the anarchy that exists between states. You have big alliances, and this makes you safer because no one will dare to uh, attack your big alliance. The problem is, of course, if uh, this depends out of control, as it did in August of 1914, then you've got uh, the potential for a very large war. And it's no accident that this whole League of Nations and United Nations um, concept is in a line of descent from the, the Entente. It's basically the um, military alliance of certain Western powers writ large. They say, well, the Entente was good and you know, defeated the Kaiser, so we just need to have the same organization with the same good powers running it on a global scale, get everyone talked into agreeing to this. And the UN, quite literally, I mean, Roosevelt starts talking about United Nations during the war. There's no organization. It's just his slogan for the powers that are fighting Germany, Japan, and Italy. This is the United Nations. It's, it's clearly the military alliance that, that suddenly is said to have given birth to a world order and a new organization with a charter. But first I have to say something about the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. Uh, it's a rather innocent-looking document. It's rather brief. Uh, it's on the web if anybody wants the, the text. It's just a couple of articles. And Secretary Kellogg, in a fit of American idealism, supposedly went around and got uh, many of the powers to agree that the war was a bad thing. And they all agreed that they wouldn't resort to war as an instrument of policy. Now, of course, all the ratifying powers in, in ratifying this uh, innocent-sounding document said that, of course, they all reserved the right to judge when they had to defend uh, the particular state. But no, they, but they did agree that war was a bad thing and they, they wouldn't do it except in self-defense. Well, this is incoherent because you will always say that you're doing this in self-defense. And, and so the pact, in a sense, is said to have been a failure. Now it's coming to be appreciated as a major turn in the sort of rhetorical development of these new notions of international law and collective security. In, in fact, uh, part of the legal rationale for the Nuremberg trials was that all the powers had agreed that uh, war was outlawed. So you, you couldn't launch a war. Then it followed that anyone who launched a war was guilty of aggression. And then they kind of plea bargained everything down and are uh, up. And they said, well, then this would mean that, of course, planning an aggressive war would be bad. And then buying paper clips to make the aggressive war possible would be bad. And having the intention would be bad. And you get a whole kind of English law proliferation of separate charges once you decide that somebody uh, was preparing all those years for an aggressive war. So it's like saying that, well, Saddam Hussein has this regime and he has some weapons. Uh, we say that he intends, by powers of mind reading, we say that he intends to use these for aggressive war, which would be illegal. Therefore, everything he's done to have a military at all is part of this great crime. So the distinction uh, between defense and offense or weapons of offense and defense is somewhat nebulous anyway. At least it's not completely obvious. Well, now it just becomes completely arbitrary, uh, subject to the definition of whoever is deciding who the aggressors are. So hence the significance of the Kellogg-Briand Pact and a number of writers um, uh, began uh, 
promoting this, this new notion. Uh, one of them is Denner Frank Fleming, later of Cold War revisionism fame, but he's basically a Wilsonian. Quincy Wright, he's a, he's a real titan in this field. Uh, for years, I thought of him as just a sort of a peace guy, a general kind of guy advocating peace. Well, it turns out on further examination, all the peace guys are simply advocates of collective security. There are very few real peace guys in the literature, except for some extreme leftists and Mennonites and libertarians. Um, they're all collective security guys who believe that uh, the only way to have peace is to impose it by force, bringing back that paradox where you're making war and calling it peacemaking. And you, you begin to see with these writers and then also, of course, in the practice at Nuremberg and another uh, later uh, war crimes trials and so forth, the claim that this new international order should be able to reach individuals. So you get this whole Madisonian dimension where Madison says that, well, the problem with the Confederation is that the central government can't reach down to individuals and take their money and slap them in jail. And any proper system, there should, this, should, this should be possible. So you have this constant sort of, particularly with the American writers, this constant set of analogies um, between American federalism as it turned out and how the world order should turn out. Okay. Of course, if you think that the way the American Federation turned out wasn't good, you might judge these things differently. But anyway, secretaries of state, um, uh, Henry Stimson and Cordell Hall went around in the uh, uh, 30s acting as though everyone had agreed that war was outlawed and war was now a crime, uh, developing this rhetoric and, and, and so forth. And we see this increasingly um, uh, employed. And so in short order, we do have the second uh, world war with all those complications. And coming directly out of this, the UN Charter, which is supposed to embody uh, this new thought, this new international law. By the way, I should go back and say that, of course, one of the central points of this new idea of international law was that, well, neutrality was obsolete because that's the bad old international law which assumed that states would just independently go to war um, and people could be neutral. This is bad. You can't be neutral. And so nobody wants to work on uh, uh, re rethinking or um, deploying any of these older rules of um, neutrality which I suppose we would think were about the best thing you could uh, get under the circumstances. So the UN Charter, it reads like a weird combination of the U.S. Constitution, uh, utopian aspirations, an ordinary treaty of alliance, and a set of rules for a private club. And Hans Kelsen has a very biting essay on the, the preamble to the UN Charter in which he points out this sort of uh, American aspect of it, among other things. And somehow this is going to make uh, collective security into a going concern. But of course there's some practical aspects. It has to be uh, something that might actually be, be uh, practicable. So you have to have, in effect, a central committee of the big powers who actually have the weaponry uh, and then will vote. So a majority of these big powers actually will make these determinations about who's the aggressor, who should be boycotted, who should be sanctioned, who should be carpet bombed, or whatever they decide needs to be done. And of course this broke down because uh, some of the powers uh, at this level of the organization uh, weren't speaking to the others. So the Cold War cut across 
the, the whole uh, happy prospect of uh, collective security. So the um, certain dodges were resorted to, again, part of the living charter kind of thing, uh, certain dodges somehow. Uh, I think, it, if I'm not mistaken, there, was, there got to be this kind of habit of uh, uh, bypassing the Security Council and going to the General Assembly to get a vote on something which, on the textual evidence of the charter, isn't proper procedure, but it's no different than ratifying NAFTA by a majority vote of the whole Congress, when if it's a treaty, it should be ratified by two-thirds of the Senate. So there are certain dodges uh, typically invented by the Americans to get around the fact of the Soviet veto or the threat of a Soviet veto and so forth. So there's been some development along these lines. Now I want to mention, okay, I've already mentioned the Nuremberg trials as sort of uh, being a sort of test case of this new notion. And, and there's an interesting critique by a fellow named Scheck in the same journal that I alluded to, the American Journal of International Law. And he points out there, there were other ways to accomplish this. I mean, if someone, there was this felt need to punish uh, certain German politicians at the end of World War II, wouldn't exactly have been impossible to uh, set up a German court under a German state and, and have, have uh, the, the enemies of these people <laughs> handle the case. You don't need to go through all this rigmarole of uh, setting these precedents. Uh, now, there was, as I say, some persistence of the older school into the 50s so that, uh, for instance, uh, Borchard writes a kind of blistering critique of the Truman Doctrine as part of this emerging American uh, globalism under this kind of rhetoric. Uh, but I want to quote a couple of things from John Bassett Moore because he's just very lucid and he's one of the older international lawyers. And he writes in 1933, the President of the United States has no power either under the Constitution or under international law, legally to decide the question whether a foreign government is de jure, or in other words, established in conformity with the Constitution and laws of the country over which it actually rules. Nor did Congress have this power. Congress has the power under the Constitution to uh, make some policy decisions about retaliations and things that actually occur during a war. But nowhere does it say we are in the business of deciding who's a good government and a bad government. And this had come up famously when Woodrow Wilson couldn't get a government that he liked in Mexico, which was undergoing a horrific revolution. And, and Wilson was just never satisfied with the people that would turn up in power in, in, in Mexico City. And so he kept saying, we can't recognize these bad, bad governments. And he issued a general proclamation that this applied to all of Latin America. He was only going to uh, recognize the good governments, and he would determine... And, of course, this tends to interrupt diplomacy and, and ordinary practice of the courts and so forth when you put the status of the government in doubt. Uh, traditionally, you just ignore all these things that are going on. If the government's there in effective control, then you accept that its acts are, are, have been legal and, and so forth. So here's Wilson opening up this characteristic can of worms. And this is important, of course, because this has all come back in a big way to haunt us. Now there are all sorts of articles in journals, including the American Journal of International Law, saying, well, there's an emerging right to democratic government governance. Everyone everywhere in the world has a right to a democratic government. Well, of course, we see how this plays in the, the crisis with Iraq. This is one of the constant themes that the poor Iraqis are suffering, and we owe it to them to bomb them so they can have, a, have elections and, and, and so on. So there's a number of uh, these themes that go straight back to Wilson. Um, 
But let me uh, read the, uh, I think it's a particularly good quote from John Bassett Moore in this same article in 1933, as this new law is, or this new conception of international law is emerging. He says, the tendency to confuse war and peace and to magnify the part which force may play in international affairs not unnaturally followed the so-called world war. During that great conflict, there developed in the ordinary course of things a war madness manifested in the exaltation, exaltation of force and the belittling of the enduring legal and moral obligations which lie at the foundation of civilized life. Peaceful processes fell into disrepute. We began to hear of the war to end war. And the pacifists, enamored of this shibboleth, espoused, espoused the shallow creed that international peace could be best assured by the use of force or threats of force. We were told that pre-existing international law had suddenly become obsolete and that the world had entered upon a new era in which the general tranquility was to be maintained by sanctions, boycotts, and by war. The final stage was reached in the notion now rampant that people, peoples may with force and arms exterminate one another without breach of peace so long as they do not call it war. In this final stage belongs the supposition that the law of neutrality no longer exists and in future wars there will be no more neutrals. And we're beginning to see this now. There's all this retrospective uh, litigation, uh, all the neutrals who dared to stay out of World War II are in trouble. <laughs> so I'm sure Portugal will be sued any minute now. <laughs> Switzerland, of course. Uh, the Swedes have it coming. They're all going to be punished for having been neutral during this great war. Okay. So that's part of the rhetoric. Um, now, I can say a lot more about the critical school because these, these, these uh, people like Jessup and uh, Borchard and uh, Moore had quite a lot to say and it's, it's still very good. And this is why these were the favorite uh, international lawyers of the old right isolationists. But I want to forge ahead to the trajectory that, that, that's then followed from the 50s to the present by this new school. I'm picking, I'm thinking here of the American writers although there's analogs elsewhere. Um, after all, one of the great uh, friends of the notion of collective security was Maxim Litvinov, the, the Soviet uh, foreign minister. He's always trying to conjure up threats to collective security in the interest of uh, getting some uh, shelter for Stalin. Um, now, it's interesting that I think you can see the process worked out in this one journal. Okay, the American Journal of International Law which we'll call Agile because they are Agile. Their positions always seem to coincide with an apology for U.S. foreign policy at any given time. But you can also follow it uh, very closely in the career of one writer, and this is this W. Michael Raisman. I don't know if he's related to an economist of the same name. Uh, he's, quite, he's quite fascinating because he begins writing in this journal in 1968. He's now the editor. And the first article he co-authors with the editor then, Myers McDougall, and it's a, an explanation of how it's perfectly reasonable to, to boycott and starve the Rhodesians uh, for their various crimes, such as claiming independence from Britain, which, oddly enough, we had done that ourselves, but somehow it's wrong to do it in the 1960s, particularly if you have a racist regime. So that's his uh, first contribution of which I'm aware. Then, fast forward to 1988, he, he's writing this long piece with the co-author James Silk about what law applies to the Afghan conflict. Well, wouldn't you know it? 
the law that applies in the Afghan conflict uh, favors the United States and uh, doesn't favor the Soviet position. Well, that's surprising. Uh, plus, that same year, he has a kind of manifesto in which he says in this journal that the, the war of the Afghan people is a people's liberation struggle with an exclamation point. And that's true because at that time they were, they, were, they were good Muslim fanatics, whereas later they weren't recently. And he has a piece on uh, war powers under the U.S. Constitution in 1989, uh, suggesting that, well, of course, there should be a lot of war powers and the president should really predominate, but there's still some stickiness in the system that needs to be worked out. By 1990, he's talking about how sovereignty must everywhere give way to the emerging conception of human rights. Okay, so human rights trump all these old sovereignties uh, and, and so forth, with, I suppose, there'd be an obvious exception to this. Um, now, here's one of my favorites. Here's a piece in 1994, and it's titled, Preparing to Wage Peace Toward the Creation of an International Peacemaking Command and Staff College. He wants West Point for the armed pacifists. I find this quite a remarkable case of double think and sort of schizophrenia to propose a war college uh, that's going to maintain peace. Well, again, you could fall back on what Tacitus says, that they um, create a desert and call it peace. Okay, <laughs> great quote. So perhaps it is consistent after all, a longstanding tradition of Roman imperialism. And then the last article of, uh, the, of his I've seen is, is called In Defense of World Public Order. Now we have World Public Order. Okay, and this is uh, in October of 2001. So this brings me to uh, the present situation. Uh, what, what's the seem to be the present trends. Uh, actually, I, I, actually, I'd like to drop back. If, I guess I've got enough time. And just torture a few um, things out of this piece he did on Rhodesia with the other uh, writer, McDougall. Um, see if I can... Well, he's saying that Britain as an enlightened power refused to grant independence until the Rhodesians had got everything in a row and granted majority rule and, and that sort of thing. Okay, Britain's an enlightened power, and it's just been certified here. And so what the Rhodesians did is illegal. And, and, and so in the interests of uh, humanity, you have to put this down, this, this terrible rebellion, which is then characterized as a unilateral declaration of independence, although one, one would think that declarations of independence are always a bit unilateral, but this is one of the rhetorical devices. So he's kind of torn between saying that the UN, since this is a colony that's going, is scheduled to uh, be liberated once the details are worked out and the majority uh, rules that it's really under the sovereignty of the UN. He actually uses this term sovereignty of the UN, or, or they do. But on other, uh, other, other uh, points in the argument, he appeals to the sovereignty of Britain, which is somehow the overseeing power. So he has a choice of which sovereignty he can bring in if he needs to use the concept of sovereignty. But now... What, what, what justifies this? I mean, how can you say, here's the Rhodesians, they've declared independence, you don't like their government, you think it's a bad government internally. But what's the reason for uh, placing them under blockade, even though that's just called sanctions? How can you blockade them? They're not doing anything to anybody, except they have a form of government internally that some people don't like. Well, it's because they're a threat to peace. What's a threat to peace? Well, it's a bit subjective, turns out. It's a threat to peace, uh, and the Charter turns out to be rather flexible on this. 
And he says, the potential effective power which global elites perceive in the symbols of international authority and, and can strengthen, and, and, and seeing this potential effective power, the global elites will strengthen and extend the authority of this conception of international law. So suddenly we do have a living charter. And he says it's actually good that they don't specify in the charter uh, uh, very strictly what some of these things mean, that they didn't uh, define the key terms like threat to the peace. This is good because this means you can decide them as you go. So what we have is the legislative model that uh, Bruno Leone talks about, uh, supplanting the uh, sort of judicial model. You don't have defined terms. You just make them up and you say, well, it's threat to the peace because we say it is. But then he has a little more. He's got a, he says that it uh, makes the neighbors feel bad. So the Africans in the neighboring countries will feel bad, and this adds to their tension, and this might ultimately cause a breakdown in peace. Actually, it never did. I mean, in South Africa, which is the real poster boy for evil in this part of the world, supposedly, was always having to turn away immigrants who wanted to move there because the place was more productive than the, uh, the black-run regimes, but that's a minor point. So uh, I find this fascinating. We've already got the kind of postmodern subjective notion of harm creeping in. But of course, this is what uh, you would want if you were running an arbitrary system and pretending it was law. You'd want to be able to change the meaning or define things as you go. You'd want a living constitution or a living UN charter and, and so on. Otherwise, it's not very workable. People will hide behind... Uh, the, the uh, guarantees, and you can't have people hiding behind constitutional guarantees when they're, when they're doing bad. So that's the simple. There's more, but it's kind of a great article because it's so symptomatic of everything we hear now, but this is already in 1968, so he's 30-some th years ahead of his time in working out this kind of uh, discussion in relation to uh, Rhodesia. Okay, now let me see. Did I just misplace a page? Okay, I think I did. Well, I want to say a little more. What I think is interesting right now is the way in which we have this sort of um, emergent ideology. But in a way, there's a tension. There are people that really believe in this stuff. There are people who really accept this gospel of, of world government. And now that uh, the Cold War is over and nobody vetoes anything, and one power dominates this organization or, uh, or has up to a point, I suppose the real ideological internationalists hope to use American power as approximate means of realizing their project. On the other hand, I suppose uh, you'd have to say that uh, some of these people in the uh, American state apparatus just hope to use the UN as a rhetorical cover and fig leaf. In general, though, there's a huge amount of overlap between these two positions, and you see this all through the journal that I've been using as sort of my uh, laboratory, uh, American Journal of International Law. Uh, it's very hard to separate out whether these guys actually believe in this UN business or whether they see it as a convenient ideological cover for the empire. Or given the fact they can believe a lot of other contradictory things, maybe they can simultaneously believe both. I don't know. Um, there's a tendency in some of the literature now to, again, drag uh, poor Immanuel Kant in as uh, a kind of uh, long-term justification for these notions. And there's also a continual discussion of the rel rel relativity of sovereignty. After all, you can't just have people out there respected as equally sovereign powers. 
And in practice, of course, there was always a limit to that. But the uh, older international law rested on the notion. Well, now I was saying, well, the notion is bad. After all, if someone were sovereign and did bad things, you couldn't punish them. But I have a quote here. This is um, Colin Powell um, in January saying, we continue to reserve our sovereign right to take military action against Iraq alone or in a coalition of the willing. I'm getting tired of hearing about this willing business, but uh, anyway. Uh, so there is one power that will still claim sovereignty when it's convenient and then adopt this UN rhetoric and derogation of anybody else's claims to do uh, something the United States doesn't want done. Now, as I've said before, I think one of the worst aspects of this, and you can see it kind of um, putting the present peace movement in a rhetorical corner, is the appeal to the UN as though the UN were the source of law. Uh, a lot of these people will be undercut and have to find a new argument if the United States manages to conjure up votes in the Security Council for the uh, much promoted war. Uh, but on the face of it, by appealing to the UN and treating this as a source of law, uh, then anything the UN said was a just war would be a just war, and that would be the end of it, because it's a legislative model of how these problems are resolved. So that's an interesting problem right there. Um, let's see. So. Uh, well, this is sort of an attempt at um, reconstructing some of this ideologically and historically, and it's still a bit rough, but there's a huge amount of material on this that I've uh, gone through, and so I hope this, is, this has been of uh, some use in orient, orienting uh, ourselves in the present uh, situation. I will, I will recommend it once it's done, and I've got the final version. I will recommend it uh, over this piece done by two scholars at the Cato Institute who have decided that everything has turned out for the best and that international law is actually much improved, and it's all because of transaction costs and spontaneous order. And I think we can do a little different approach than that. Thank you.